11 today. Specifically, Mark 11 and verse 12. That's where we're starting. Should be page 772 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Mark 11 and 12, it says, On the next day, when they had left Bethany, Jesus became hungry. Seeing from a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. The title of the message this morning is, Where's the Fruit? pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. You're great and awesome, worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We need you today to open our hearts to receive the word. As Father, send Holy Spirit to come to make your word living and active. That your word and spirit work together to search us and test us and see if there's anything in our lives that's not as it ought to be. Guide us, Father, that we would examine our lives in light of your word seriously. Lord, what we're looking at today is not a minor thing. It's not a trivial thing. It's fairly significant. So let let us give it the weight in our lives that it ought to. Help us to lay aside any cares of life we may have brought in. And just in this few moments we have together to be focused on you. To be focused on your word. To be focused on what Jesus has said and what it means for our lives today. Fill me with Holy Spirit and give me unction. My speech and preaching would not be with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but would be in demonstration of your spirit and your power. So people's faith wouldn't stand in my cleverness or my wisdom, but in the mighty power of our God. Have your way. All of our lives we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. Now the details of the story can make it confusing. If you look at verse 12, we see Jesus is is hungry. And so in verse 13, he he sees in the distance a, a fig tree and it specifically says that it was in leaf. So he goes to see if he could find any fruit, any figs on it. But when he gets there, he finds nothing but leaves. And then we're told Because it wasn't the season for figs yet. And even though it wasn't the season for figs, Jesus curses the tree. Says, may no one eat fruit from you ever again. And then a few verses later, chapter in verse 20, 21, it tells us that the disciples are going by the tree the next day and they find it dead from the roots. So Jesus curses the tree to death. Because it didn't have figs when it wasn't fig season. So this can leave us with questions. I mean, if it was too early for figs, why did Jesus go looking for figs? And if it was too early for figs, why was Jesus upset that there weren't any figs on the tree? And the story is is really a... It's a prophetic action by Jesus. 
And to understand the story, we've got to understand the context. Chapter 11 begins the the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We didn't skip that. We looked at it just before Easter on Palm Sunday. Jesus comes in and the, the crowd shouts, Hosanna. They put palm branches down and they, they praise Him. And immediately after our text, in verse 15, look at verse 15. Jesus, we'll see next week, Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to go into the temple. And, and He's going to be brought into immediate conflict with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the religious leaders. And then between those two instances of his triumph and the conflict that he's going to have, he curses a fig tree. Now, to understand the the curse of the fig tree, to understand the significance of it, we've got to think about the life and the ministry of Jesus. I mean, who in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus, who bore the brunt of his indignation? As he interacted with people. Was it tax collectors and prostitutes and other sort of sinners? Well, no. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. Everywhere he went, they gathered to hear what he had to say. Rather, it was the religious people. It was the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, in comparison... Did the the religious leaders, did they live openly wicked and immoral lives? Well, again, the answer is no, they didn't. Outwardly, they appeared to be very righteous. In fact, just by outward appearances from the outside looking in, they were the epitome most times of what a good Jewish person ought to be. They had all of the outward appearances of religion. They wore the right clothes. They went to the temple on the right days. They, they tithed down to the, the smallest amount of their, uh, of their income. But, but the inward stuff that should have come from knowing God, it wasn't really there. They had an outward expression of religion. They didn't have any sort of inward fruit from knowing their God. Now, the trees are also important. Something that that I wouldn't have known. Maybe you know more about fig trees than I do. But some fig trees are early fig trees, which means they produce fruit ahead of the normal season for figs. Also, most fig trees produce figs first and then leaves afterward. So if you saw a fig tree in leaf, it would be safe to conclude that fig tree had fruit. But this one didn't. He found nothing on it but leaves, it says in verse 13. And here's how all this ties together. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, had all of the outward acts 
of religion. The leaves, if you will. But there was no inner righteousness. There was no fruit from knowing their God. In other words, their religion and their righteousness was nothing but leaves. It was nothing but an appearance of something that wasn't real. And by cursing the fig tree for having leaves but no fruit, Jesus declares to to them at that time, to us in our time, that the appearance of religion without the fruit of salvation is not enough. And as disciples of Jesus, one of the things we know is we're to bear, we're to live fruitful lives. We don't have time this morning, but take some time and read John 15 about abiding in Jesus. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. By this the Father is glorified. By this you can see that you are my disciples. We are meant to bear much fruit. And so what about us? What about our lives today? Most of us have at least some appearance of religion. I mean, if nothing else, we're at church on a Sunday morning. That's a that's a religious thing to do. But is there more to our religion than Sunday morning church attendance? Is there anything in our lives that testifies that we know Jesus, that we're abiding in him and thus bearing much fruit? What Jesus teaches us here and what we're going to talk about today is the reality. The appearance of religion without the fruit of salvation, it's useless. It has no real value. But what kind of fruit should a disciple of Jesus bear? There's a lot that we could look at, but there are three that I think are most significant in relation to salvation. The first is simply the fruit of the Spirit. It's actually called fruit. When we're saved, Holy Spirit of God comes to live within us. And He comes to To do a lot of things. He empowers us. He strengthens us. He gifts us. He enables us. But he also transforms us. From the inside out. So that what is seen on the outside. Is a result of what has been done. On the inside. And this is a. This fruit that he produces is a. It is a testimony. Of our salvation. That we have repented of our sins. We have believed in the Lord Jesus. And now we are indwelt. By the spirit of God. Which is a part. The the covenant. The seal. Of our salvation. Well what is this fruit. This testimony. Fruit of the spirit is love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. And self-control. Let me just kind of quickly go through these. First love. The Greek word translated as love is the word agape. 
It's the word always used when it talks about God's love for us. This is the love Jesus demonstrated on the cross. This is also the kind of love Jesus said would be the distinctive mark of his disciples in John 13:35. Joy is an inward rejoicing that remains despite the circumstances of life. Peace is an inner quietness, tranquility that comes from trusting God's sovereignty regardless of the circumstances of life. Jesus said his peace was a gift to us in John 14, 27. Patience, long-suffering is how I've got it remembered, but it's patience in the Bible I use. It's the opposite of being short-tempered. Man, that's rough. It's the opposite of flying off the handle quickly. It is putting up with people who irritate us. Patience bears with annoyances and inconveniences largely without complaint. Does not lose its temper when provoked, at least not quickly. I, as I understand it, the most probably literal, the reason some translations use long-suffering is the most literal rendering of the Greek word is uh, slow-burning. Right, so it's a slow burning fuse. Kindness. Kindness is actively taking the initiative to respond to the needs of others. So kindness isn't just if somebody asks for help, you help them. That's kind. But the kindness here is we see the need. We do what we can to meet the need even without being asked. Goodness. Reaching out to, to do good, to be good for others. Goodness does not repay evil for evil. It doesn't get even. Instead, it seeks to overcome evil with good, as Romans 13 says. Romans 12, I'm sorry. Faithfulness. It's being trustworthy. If you say you will do it, you will. One of the Psalms says, keep your word even if it hurts. Faithfulness. Gentleness. It means to be meek. To be tender. To be humble. To be mild. To be considerate. Gentleness cares for the feelings of others. And so, in, in some ways, gentleness will, will give a right answer, a true answer. But gentleness also understands that, that your tone matters. That the way you say it can crush people. So a gentle person tries to say the right thing in the right way. Self-control. It's choosing to do what we know is right. Despite the desire to do what we know to be wrong. And the Holy Spirit who lives within every born again disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is constantly working to produce all of these things in our lives. And what makes them challenging? What makes this, I mean, aside from the obvious of what makes it challenging, what makes it most challenging, is these virtues are really meant to be seen in difficult times. Not because 
When everything is right in the world, anyone can produce a measure of those. If I'm around people I love, it's easy to be loving. If I'm around people who don't irritate me, it's easy to be patient. Right? But what the Holy Spirit produces is seen when we're tempted to do the opposite. Not everybody in this world is lovable. They're just hard to be around. The Holy Spirit produces a love for the unlovable. I find that challenging. The Holy Spirit produces a joy even in the midst of circumstances that conspire to steal our joy. Find that difficult. The Holy Spirit produces a, a peace that passes all understanding in the midst of a storm that's out of our control. I find that challenging. The Holy Spirit produces a, a patience with irritating and annoying people. I find that challenging. The Holy Spirit produces a kindness in us that makes us be kind to people maybe we don't even think deserves our kindness or our help. I find that to be challenging. The Holy Spirit produces a, a goodness in us that tempts us to be good to others. But maybe we want to be and we have the power to be cruel to them. Sadly, I find that challenging. Faithfulness, the Holy Spirit produces, causes us to keep our word when we really don't want to. That's probably the least challenging for me of what we're talking about. Gentleness. Holy Spirit produces a gentleness that makes us be gentle even when we're angry, even when we're frustrated. I find that to be challenging. The Holy Spirit produces a self-control that enables us to say no to what we're not supposed to do and yes to what we are supposed to do despite strong desires to do the opposite. I very often find that challenging to do. Anyone can show some measure of those virtues when all is well in their lives. But only a born-again, spirit-filled disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ can show all of these virtues regardless of the circumstances of their lives. And the Holy Spirit producing these doesn't mean it's going to be easy to do those things. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean there won't be, we, gr we don't grow in them. Just suddenly we have this unbelievably supernatural love for all people. It doesn't happen that way either. But there should be some measure of growth, of change 
in all of these virtues, in all of our lives, if we've been born again, if we know our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit lives within us. Is this fruit visible in your life? Not not in perfect measure, but in any measure. Secondly, a desire for God's Word. When Jesus saves someone, He always changes them. The only people who ever left Jesus the same were those who rejected Jesus. But everyone else left different. The Holy Spirit never comes to indwell someone to leave them the same. We wouldn't need the Holy Spirit if we didn't need to change. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us to change us. In one area, this change is seen is in our desires. And there are any number of desires we could talk about that change, but the one that that I think is probably the most significant and the greatest telltale sign of salvation is the desire for God's Word. Because the unbelievers have no real desire for God's Word. They don't really want to, to dig in and, and to study it and to know it. Someone who's been born again, they do. Look, look at what it says. And like newborn babies long for the, the pure milk of the word. So that by it you may grow and respect the salvation if you have tasted the kindness, the goodness of the Lord. So if we have tasted the kindness of the Lord, then a desire that grows out of that is a desire for the Word of God. A a longing is what the New American Standard says. And the word translated as as long, for the longing there, it, it means to have an intense desire. Or really even a a craving. And it not only implies a desire, but it pictures a willingness to do whatever is necessary to acquire that desire. The Greek word also indicates that the desire is active and objective. It's active in that we will get up and do what is necessary, but it's objective in that there is only the object of our desire will satisfy this desire. In this case, it is the Word of God. So those who have tasted the kindness of the Lord have an active desire for God's Word. A desire that that gets them to do what is necessary to be in God's Word. And a desire that can only be satisfied by God's Word. It it can't be satisfied with desperate housewives or, or anything else. Now when we think about this, something to understand is that the desire for God's Word, it, it gets us into the Bible on our own, 
where we study it. But it, but it also gets us into places where it is going to be taught and proclaimed. It would bring us to church. And, and I say this because when Peter wrote this, personal copies of the Bible didn't exist. In our day, we all have multiple copies, hard copies, not to mention whatever we have on our on our electronic devices. So we see something like this and we automatically assume, well, yes, me and my Bible at home with Jesus. But it can't mean just that. Because what we're imagining didn't exist when Peter wrote that. When Peter wrote that, the only way to satisfy the desire for God's Word was to gather with the people of God. And listen to God's Word being taught and proclaimed. Now, in our day, what a blessing we have that we have multiple copies of the Bible and our preferred translation and our primary heart language. And so, yes, for us, it does apply to the reading of the word. But it can't only apply to the reading of the word. When I long for the pure milk of the word, I long To study God's word on my own. And I long. To be places where God's word is taught. Where God's word is being proclaimed. What we're doing here. Is worship. Worship isn't just the singing. The singing is a part of worship. But it's not the totality of worship. Worship is essentially declaring. God's worth. And when we say, I I am going to go somewhere so that I can hear God's word proclaimed, God's word taught, what I'm saying is God is worthy of me getting up. And God is worthy of me putting on my clothes. And God is worthy of me getting out of my house and, and spending time, devoting time to listening to the teaching of God's word. What we're doing Here, right now, in this moment, is a worship experience. We are declaring the worth of our God. Because we have set aside this time to study His Word, to hear His Word proclaimed. And again, this desire flows out of the fact that we have encountered Jesus. We have tasted the kindness or the goodness of of Jesus, And we, we encountered it, we tasted it through the Word. But none of us were just sitting at home, watching Desperate Housewives, and suddenly we said, I need Jesus. That's not how we came to faith in Christ. We came to faith because somebody shared from God's Word. And that Word dug into our heart. Now maybe we didn't come to faith in that moment. But it was the word that God used and the spirit that worked in through the word to bring us to faith in Jesus. And it was through the word we tasted the goodness and the kindness of God. And so we long for God's word because we long for a greater knowledge of the good God we've experienced. We long. To, to hear God's word so that we can better know the good God, the kind God that we have 
No. We also long for the word so that we can grow in the grace, the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The growth in respect to salvation doesn't just happen. Just because someone is a Christian and has been a Christian for 10 years or 20 years, that doesn't mean they're a mature Christian. They may not be any further along than they were on the day they were saved. At the same time, somebody that's only been a Christian for a few years may be much further along. Well, what makes the difference? Most of the time, it is their relationship to God's word. Anytime studies are done to show what has helped people grow in respect to salvation, what has given people deep roots in Christ so that they can sustain through the hardships of life, the number one thing always rises to the top in those surveys, those studies, is the person being diligent to be students of the Word. We are not going to grow in respect to salvation apart from God's Word. And I could go a long reason into why, but one of the main reasons is this. The Christian life is not natural. You're not going to drift into understanding the need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. The drift of our flesh, the drift of our culture, is indulgence, not self-denial. And you can't drift into indulgence and grow in respect to salvation at the same time. We need God's Word to teach us what is contrary to us. We need God's Word to teach us what is contrary to the culture around us. And it is only as we go against the grain and go against the flow that we begin to grow. And we cannot do that apart from God's word. Do you have a desire for God's word? Again, I'm not saying perfection. I'm saying a desire. I mean, you want to be in the word. You want to be in places where the word is taught. If you have been born again, the spirit of the living God is within you. That desire should be there. Is this fruit evident in your life? And and then a final fruit for today. A lifestyle of obedience. You know, when we talk about the change Jesus makes in us when we get saved, most often we focus on the change made regarding our eternal destination. And and to be sure, that's a real one. And I would in no way ever minimize that significant change. 
But he doesn't just change our eternity, but leave our present life unhindered, unaltered as well. Jesus changes us right here and right now. And one of those changes is we go from a lifestyle of disobedience to a lifestyle of obedience. Look at what the Bible says. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now that's that's pretty clear. Meeting and knowing Jesus at a at a salvific level is a life altering event. The the person who truly comes to know Jesus, who has been saved by Jesus, is never the same again. And one of the ways Jesus changes us is we're left with a desire to live for Jesus. We want to do His will. We want to keep His commandments. And in the words here, by this we know that we have come to know Him. We, we keep His commandments. I mean, that is like, that doesn't require a lot of interpretation to really get the gist of what's being said. When we know Jesus, we want to obey Jesus. And it's so clear. And it's so plain. We we often want to soften it up in some ways. But deep down we know that we cannot remain faithful to God's word... If we try to soften that up because it's just too clear. I mean, this isn't like what is a bowl of judgment and when does that happen? I mean, that's I mean, there's lots of room to talk about what that could mean and when that would happen. But this. It's clear. One of the surest signs we know Jesus. One of the surest signs we have been born again through faith in Jesus is a desire to live a lifestyle of obedience to Jesus. And the opposite is true as well. Look at what he goes on to say. The one who says I've come to know him does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Again, that that is so clear that we want to soften it up, but we can't. It means what it says, says what it means. So someone has a desire to to live a lifestyle of obedience to Jesus. That person has a lot of assurance they've been born again. But if a person has no desire whatsoever to ever live for Jesus, they really don't care. 
They have no assurance. And the reality is they do not know Jesus. They're lying about ever meeting him. And the truth is not in them. What it means is they're not saved. It's the plain meaning of the word. But as hard as this is, maybe. John makes it it harder because this isn't a picture of knuckling it under white knuckled obedience where we suck it up and we hate every moment of it. But by golly, we do it. By this, we know we love the children of God when we love God and follow his commandments, for this is the love of God. We keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. You know, anyone, I mean, humans have an incredible self-will. We can knuckle anything under for a long period of time. I watched a video a few years ago of a woman try to prove she was a breatharian and that through breathing oxygen, she got all the nutrients she wanted. And I watched her breathe in zero nutrients for 20 days and almost starve herself to death just to prove a point. That's a strong will. Anyone can knuckle anything under for a long period of time. The test is our attitude toward this obedience. And now, to say they're not burdensome, it's not to say they're not hard. It, it's all hard, right? At least if you really think about it. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. I mean, that's maybe you're different than me. I find everything I just said extremely difficult to do. But there's something in me that wants to do it. That wants to live that way. Right? Not because I just want to deny myself. I don't. I would prefer to be indulgent in every area of my life. That is just my preference in all things. But my Jesus has done something pretty significant for me. And so I I want to do what he wants me to do, which is deny myself, take up my cross and follow him. So we should not only ask, do I obey Jesus? But why do I obey Jesus? Do I obey Jesus so I can be saved? Or do I obey Jesus because I have been saved? Do I obey Jesus So that God will love me. Or do I obey Jesus because God has already loved me in Christ? That matters. That's significant. And we should also ask, what is my attitude about obeying Jesus? Is everything that I'm supposed to do in service to Jesus... Is it a burden to be born? And I hate every moment of it. 
I mean, that, that says something. Or is it, again, not saying it's not hard, but is it a desire to do it because I love the Lord who has loved me? Our, our attitude about our obedience, it matters. So we, we have to ask, do, I, do we live a lifestyle of obedience, not, not occasional obedience? Today I had a good day and I did, you know, ten things that I thought Jesus would want me to do. But the normal, habitual lifestyle is I strive to live for Jesus every day. Is the fruit of knowing Jesus like this, is it visible in my life. There's, there's more fruit, but time wouldn't permit us to look at any more. But what we've looked at today, it reveals two truths about every kind of fruit we could look at. First, the fruit Jesus produces when he saves us is both of character and of actions. Right? The fruit of the Spirit is character transformation first, but it, then it's seen in our actions. A desire for God's Word is a character transformation that is seen in our actions. Lifestyle of obedience is a transformation of actions. We, we do differently, but because it's not a burden, it's also a transformation of character. It's not just one or the other. It's always both. And the second truth is this transformation of character and actions is always visible. A person who bears the fruit of the Spirit will be noticeably different from a person who doesn't bear the fruit of the Spirit. A person who has a desire for God's word will be noticeably different than a person who does not have a desire for God's word. A person who lives a lifestyle obedience is noticeably different from a person who lives a lifestyle of disobedience. Now, can bring this back to our initial story. The tree that had no fruit, Jesus didn't tell it to do better. He cursed it and it died. It was a sign of judgment on the religious leaders of the day who had the leaves of religion without the fruit of salvation. For our purpose within the message of what we've talked about, we should see a lack of fruit as a lack of life. A lack of fruit testifies to a lack of eternal spiritual life. A lack of salvation. Again, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about a measure of the fruit of the Spirit. 
some desire for God's word, a desire to live for Jesus. Without any of that, by what right do we claim to be born again? Without any kind of growing of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, without any desire for the Word of God at all, without any desire to live for Jesus and a habitual lifestyle of disobedience, by what right do we say, I'm born again, heaven is my home? According to God's Word, by no right. It's just something we have made up on our own. You know, God's Word often encourages us To examine our lives. And and what it encourages us to do for the examination is always interesting. For instance, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. So that's what we're supposed to do. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you unless you failed the test. So test yourself to see if you're in the faith. If you're saved, examine yourselves. But notice... It doesn't tell us, examine yourselves. Did you go to an altar to pray? Did you raise your hand at the end of service? Have you been baptized? Do you attend church? Were you raised in church? Are your parents Christians? Have you asked Jesus into your heart? Did someone tell you you were saved? It doesn't say any of those things. Rather, it says, examine yourselves and see if there's evidence that Jesus is in you. And if there is no evidence that Jesus is in you, you have failed the test. What's it mean to fail the test? Well, it's talking about being in the faith. It means you're not saved. So what evidence is in our lives of Jesus? What evidence is there? That Jesus has come into our lives and has made changes to us as God's word says he did. Where's the fruit? Where is the fruit in your life? Where is the fruit in my life? What actions do we take just because we know Jesus? Not because we're older. Not because we've gotten married. Not because we've emotionally matured. Not because of any external circumstances at all. What actions do we take simply because we believe in Jesus? What is different about our character? Because we know Jesus. Not because we're older. Not because we're married, not because we've emotionally matured, not because of any external circumstances. What is different in our character just because we believe in Jesus? If we believe in Jesus, there should be something in both. There should be some change in our character. There should be some change in our actions and where it's not We're like a tree in leaf, but without fruit. If there is no fruit, the point isn't go home and try harder. Because trying harder won't produce the fruit. The fruit comes because we know Jesus. 
If there is no fruit, the need this morning is to acknowledge the fact that we don't know Jesus. To repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is extremely important. I've wrestled with this message this week because there is a there are two kinds of people who will hear this message today. There are some who always feel inadequate. They have a desire for God's word. They see a measure of the fruit of the spirit. They want to be obedient to Jesus, but they also recognize it's not enough. There's always more, and they feel inadequate. Wonder if they're saved anyway. And a message like this can just fuel those doubts. And I don't want that. But there are also people who will hear this message who have no fruit, no desire for this fruit. And yet are confident they're going to heaven when they die. Certain they're born again and they're saved despite there being no evidence for it. That the second group of people, they are the people Jesus said on the last day, he will say, depart from me. And they will say, but Lord. And he will say, I never knew you. So a message like this is hard because it can overwhelm this group of people. So you want to lighten it up so that it doesn't overwhelm them. But if you lighten it up, then this group of people goes, oh, well, that makes room for me despite the fact there's no fruit. And this group of people needs to feel the full weight of what we've talked about today. They need to see that there's no evidence of Jesus and they're lost. And I don't know how to I never figured out how to come to the balance. So here's what I'm going to say. And I'm just going to say it as plain as I can. And then I'm going to pray and open the altars up. If you have the desire to live for Jesus, to be obedient to Jesus, you strive to live for Jesus, you see a measure of change because of Jesus, take heart. The desire and the change is proof of your salvation. And if you have no desire, and if you have no fruit, and if you have no evidence, you are lost and going to hell. Repent before it's too late. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You know what each person in this church needs today with this message. Dear Lord, do what only you can do. For those who are weak and struggling, use this to strengthen them. For those who are arrogant and disobedient, use this to humble them. I'm not able. Do what only you can do, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand.